0: Well, good morning, church. Uh, nice to see you today. How are you? Good. It's nice to have you guys in here. I've, I've I, In the last couple of weeks, I've had multiple conversations with folks who uh, this is their first time back. And so as things are getting a little bit better and more people are getting immunized and the numbers are going down. It's so great to just have people in the room. It's also we're saying that for those of you who are still at home and are still joining us uh, remotely, we're really thankful that you're here too. And uh, we want to make sure. So one of the things we're doing, we're starting a new series today. By the way, my name is Darren. I'm one of the shepherds on staff here at Fullerton Free. We're beginning a new series in the book of Genesis. And for those who are in the room, when they came in today, uh, they got a copy of this Genesis journal. Uh, this has become a tool that we've begun using as a family over the last uh, few years uh, in the midst of our study. It becomes a great resource, both to see the text that we'll be studying, but then on every facing page, you've got these, uh, these blank journal pages. If you're joining us from at home, or if you're joining us from around the world someplace, and you'd like a copy of that, would you just reach out to us this week at the church office? Just email us or call us, and we'll figure out either a way to get that in the mail to you, or a way for, if you're local, for you to come and pick that up. But we'd love for everybody who's walking down this path with us in the midst of this study of Genesis to have one of those, uh, because it, it ends up being a great tool to sort of remember the things that God says to us in the process. So uh, I want to say hello to you this morning if you're there. Hello to you if you're in the room. And uh, as we begin into this series in Genesis, I want to kind of set some, some things up. Since it's the first week, uh, I want to sort of set the stage for places that we'll be going throughout the rest of the study. And so I'm going to take a couple of minutes here at the beginning just to, be, just to sort of kick that off. The place we want to begin as we study the book of Genesis is to think, um, and maybe th- this will both speak to its original authorship, but also will speak to my purpose in choosing it, and in choosing it in collaboration with some of our other leaders, uh, as something we'll be studying for a good little chunk of time here. Why, why jump into Genesis? Well, the answer to that for me is rooted not only in the fact that we feel the Spirit of God led us to this for this time, uh, and there was a long process of sort of coming to that conclusion, But let's talk for just a second about why Moses wrote it and when he wrote it. Now, I get that there are some... Uh, you know, theologians and different people who will argue about the authorship. I'm going to presume that Moses wrote it because there are people in the New Testament that I respect who presumed that Moses wrote it. So we're just going to leave it at that. You and I can argue that over coffee anytime you want. Uh, it's, not a, it's not an issue that, that we need to spend much time on. That might actually be a really good point for us, is that we don't want to get bogged down. In the study of Genesis, we don't want to get bogged down in things that don't necessarily matter and weren't the purpose for which the book was written. But that's a point that's coming in just a second. First, let's say when Moses wrote this, he wrote it at the time when he had already been told that he would not be going into the promised land with the people of Israel. The people of Israel would be going into the promised land, but they'd be going there without him. They'd be stepping into this new chapter without him because of his own failures, because of the failures of the people that he was leading at the time. All of those who rejected God's call to enter into the promised land fell in the desert, and Moses would not be going. There were only two notable exceptions of those from that original crew that left Egypt that would be going into the promised land. That was Joshua and Caleb. So Moses is thinking about the people of Israel that God has called him to lead, and he's thinking about them moving into this new chapter, moving into this new season of life where they'll face some new challenges, they'll face some new hurdles, they'll face some new obstacles. And in Moses' heart, inspired by the Holy Spirit, there is a sense that if they're going to forge a way into the future, they're going to need to be really anchored in the truth of the past. They're going to have to understand who God is They're going to have to understand who they are. They're going to have to understand what that relationship is intended to be and how it speaks to this new chapter that they're entering into as they enter into the promised land. And so Moses writes the first first five books of of the Old Testament, what's called the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, Deuteronomy. He writes those as a way to take down what had been prior to that, just an oral history, and to put it down in a way that the people would have it both to help them understand who God is, who they are, and how they go forward into this new era. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's why he writes. I will say that for me, as we sort of come out of this COVID thing, whatever that is, as we come out of 2020, as we lean into 2021, we as a people are being called into new territory. There are things about our society that are changing. There are things about our culture that are changing. There are things about our church that are changing. And as we think about what it looks like to go forward into the future that God is calling us to, it is absolutely vital and essential that we understand who God is. That we understand who we are, who he created us to be. And how those two things work together to give us a guidebook for the pathway ahead. So there are a lot of different questions we'll be looking at as we study Genesis. But remember that Moses' intention was to give the people an anchoring in the fundamental truths so that they could lean into the future more adequately and effectively. This is why Moses writes. Now, as we set it up, let me give you just a couple of overview things to think about. When we come to a book like Genesis, we recognize that the book of Genesis isn't going to answer all of our questions. And in fact, if you try and teach the book of Genesis like a science book, you're going to be frustrated. From the very first verse, which we're looking at today, there are unanswered questions. You're going to have questions, and I hope you have questions. In fact, here's another little side note. In the back of your Genesis journal, you'll notice there are about seven blank pages, uh, I'm going to give you a couple things I'd like you to write on the top of those pages, right? And you don't have to do this. It's your journal. You can do it the way you want. You want to draw pictures or do other things, you can. Let me tell you what I've written on the top of each of the pages in the back of my journal here. The first thing I wrote after the last page of Genesis is I wrote the question, Who is God? And my intention is to take these two pages and and to write my reflections about who God is as he's revealed in the text. What do I see about the character and nature of God? That's the first question I put. Now, you've already heard me say this, but my second question that I see revealed in Genesis specifically is, who am I? I might encourage you to write that down as well. What does this text say to you about who God created you to be? His purpose in creating you, right? The third question or the third observation that I wrote here is, what does it look like to walk with God? What does it look like to walk with God? I'm going to be asking myself that question as I study this book together with you. The fourth thing I wrote down here is, What are the links to other places in Scripture? Now, I've already alluded to this to some degree. We see that Jesus refers to Genesis. Peter refers to Genesis in the New Testament. Paul refers to Genesis in the New Testament. And when they refer to it, they don't refer to it as a myth. They don't refer to it as a children's story. They don't refer to it as something that can be cast aside. They refer to it as something concrete. And so, in accordance with the way Jesus and Paul and Peter looked at the Old Testament... I also look at the Old Testament not as a myth or a collection of cute children's stories, but as something revealed by God to tell us something of our history. At the same time, it's not going to answer all of our questions. It's not intended to answer all of our questions, but it is intended to cause us to ask the right questions. You see the difference between those two? You might be reading Genesis right here in the first verse and have some questions that come up. And you know what? It's not necessarily going to tell you. We'll come to that in a second. The the book of Genesis isn't going to answer all your scientific questions. It's not going to answer all of your narrative questions. It's not going to answer all of your historical questions. But it will cause you to ask the right questions. And so the last thing I write in here, uh, and actually I have one more page of things, but the last thing I write is questions. And I would encourage you as we go through the study when the light bulb comes on your head and you think, well, why did this happen? Or what's going on here? What happened to this person? Or where does he come from? Or how come nobody says anything about this or that? Write your questions down, knowing full well that that the text of Genesis or the Bible as a whole might not necessarily answer the specific question you have. But as we study the Bible, it will cause us to ask the right questions. And then the last thing, uh, the last one I've got here. So I've got who is God? Who am I? What does walking with God look like? Links to other scriptures, and there'll be lots of those. And then I've also written patterns and themes. Patterns and themes. I could have also probably included things like uh, symbolism, repetition. I want you to know that when you see patterns, or when you see repetition, that's not an accident. That's there on purpose we should be paying attention to these patterns, to these rhythms, to these repetitions, because in them we understand something of who God is and who we are, the story that God is writing. So I've got a page or two here in the back of my book for patterns and themes, and then as I already said, the very last, and that sort of gives me several pages, are my questions. I would encourage you to take that same approach. We want to approach this text as learners, and we want to be asking the right questions. We want to ask good questions. It's important to understand, and I've already alluded to this to some degree, that the whole text is linked and interconnected. So we don't see the Old Testament and the New Testament as two separate things that don't hold hands. We see them as absolutely interconnected. And so it will be important in our study for you to be thinking ahead about the ways in which the Old Testament holds hands with the New. Both literally in places where, for instance, Jesus or Peter or Paul refers back to the Old Testament. But also when you see some of these patterns and some of these rhythms that we will see repeated in the New Testament. There are sometimes accusations by people where they'll say, "Well, the God I see revealed in the Old Testament doesn't seem to be the same God that is revealed in the New Testament." That isn't true, and it's important for us as we study it to see the whole character of God reflected on every page, through every narrative, through every poem, that there aren't two different things happening here; that it is one interconnected story. We have to have the ability, kind of like they teach you when you're, um, kind of like they teach you when you're learning how to drive, when you went through driver's ed. Remember what the, what the driver's ed teacher tells you? You have to be able to look close and far. You have to be able to constantly be checking your mirrors and you're looking ahead of you and you're looking near and far and back and forth. You want to change your perspective constantly so that you can see the whole. That's a good overview. That's a good thing to just keep in mind as we study the book of Genesis together, that it's all linked. We want to be looking near and far. That's important to note that this original book was written to the people of Israel, right? It was written to the Jews originally, But it is not just for them. And so you'll hear people talk about, well, you have to understand the original audience. You have to understand the original context, the original language. All of that is true. But it's also important for us to understand that when God gave this to Moses to give to the people of Israel, he anticipated that you and I would be sitting here on a Sunday in April in 2021, facing all the things we're facing, and that it would still be relevant to us today. So God isn't surprised by the fact that the course of human history has continued. He's not surprised by science and technology. He's not surprised by the political maneuverings in our world. He's not surprised by any of this. And when the book was revealed, although it was initially revealed to a Jewish audience, it was revealed for all of us. It's not just for them. It's also God's plan for me and for you. We want to be able to look at the story, the historical narrative in Genesis, and see how God uses everything to shape the story, including the people who are not Jewish. Does that make sense? He's redeeming the whole thing. He redeems their, their victories, and he redeems their failures. He redeems the, their moments of sort of wobbliness. He redeems their mistakes. And the same thing is true for us. We want to be able to see how God uses everything. I've already said there's lots of repetition, there's patterns, there's recurring themes, there's symbolism. None of that is accidental. It's all on purpose. God gave us the book that he wanted us to have, so look for those patterns. Look for those rhythms. Jot those things down, and I may point at them as we walk through it together. We do know that throughout the Bible, there are different writing styles. In, uh, in the book of Genesis, we'll see a little bit of poetry. We'll see a little bit of prophecy. But we're mostly looking here at theological, historical narrative. Now, th- those words might not mean anything to you. But I'll just repeat to you again that God didn't give us the book of Genesis to be our science book. Right? It's not meant to be our science book. In fact, we don't have enough detail for it to be a science book. Is there science contained in Genesis? Absolutely. There is absolutely science there. But we don't want to look at this and go, God was trying to give us a manual for science. God was anticipating that science would be progressively revealed and this would fit hand in hand with it. And I believe that it does, right? But we don't necessarily want to look at this. What is this? This is theological. In fact, as another little side note, let me say that as we study the book of Genesis, we will see almost every core and essential theological principle that is vital to our faith either spoken to directly in the book of Genesis or at least hinted at, right? At least hinted at. So it could be valuable. Maybe you want to take one of those other pages in the back of your book and write the word theology at the top because we will see good theology through this whole book. There's a historical narrative that's meant to tell us something. The question for us is what is it we're meant to pick up? What is it we're meant to be paying attention to? And if we get bogged down in things that aren't the thing the author intended... We'll lose the main deal. And you guys, I'm guessing that even as we get into Genesis 1 over the next three weeks, that some of you are hoping we're going to answer the question, right? Was it seven literal days? Was it created over eons and eons and whatever? There are great people in this room who believe all those things. Guess what? We're not going to spend a ton of time talking about those things because that's not why the book was written, right? It's not the intention of the book. It's not the point. Now, can we debate about it? Can we have healthy conversation as brothers and sisters? Absolutely. But sometimes we get so lost in the trees that we miss the forest, right? Sometimes we get so lost in our questions that the book isn't intended to answer, that we never ask the questions it's wanting us to ask about who God is and who we are. So all that to say, uh, there are different writing styles here. This is historical narrative. There's beauty in the simplicity of that. And the last thing I want to say in my preamble here, in my sort of setup, is I don't want you to be panicked by the pace. Uh, This book is uh, big, right? So when you got the journal today, you can see it's a big book. Uh, we're going to be in it for a good length of time, but it might make you feel terrified when Christina says, our text for today is Genesis one one. Some of you are like, oh man, we're going to be studying Genesis until we're dead, right? Let me just tell you, the pace is not always going to go that microscopic. I think it's vital that this morning we look at one verse. We're going to start with one verse today. And as we go, those sections are going to get longer. There are places as we get further in where we'll be taking two chapters at a, at a glance, Right? But here at the outset, we got to go slow because there are foundational things we need to look at with a magnifying glass. Does that make sense? So don't get nervous about the pace. Don't get worried about it. All these teachings are online, so if you miss a week or whatever, you'll be able to go back. If you're tracking with us from somewhere else, you'll be able to download that stuff and, and stay with us. Don't be worried about the pace. I think we've got a good pace. But it's not going to be one verse a week until we're all 150 years old. By the way, happy birthday to Russ Rigg, who turned 103 yesterday. I talked to him on the phone. He seems very happy, so I don't know. I I asked him if he was going to have a cupcake, and he said he didn't know. So I don't know. I don't know whether that worked out or not. We're not going to be in it until we're on 103, except for Russ, who is already 103, and he he just has to deal. He'll be in this study until he's 104, so that's the way that goes. So this morning, with all that out of the way, and by the way, if you have other questions or there's other things you want to do with those end pages, I would highly encourage you to do that. This morning, I'd like us to turn our attention to Genesis 1-1, and just Genesis 1-1 for the sake of this morning. Genesis 1-1, as we already read, says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To be honest, I could have taught this message this morning, maybe even just out of the first four words, but we'll go a little bit deeper. And what I want to share with you this morning is 10 observations. I know that probably seems like a lot. I've already done a bunch of preamble. You're probably nervous. We're going to go relatively quickly through them. But this is even just to give you a sense of how deep and how rich this book is. It's in some ways to encourage your own observations and your own questions. I studied Genesis 1-1, and here are some of the things that stirred in my heart, things I don't want you to miss, things that I absolutely think are essential here. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The first of my ten observations as we look at it today. The first thing you see is that God is at the center of this and everything. Notice that God is the subject of this first verse. When the Bible starts, right, at the very beginning, God is the subject. Now that might feel like an oversimplification of this particular sentence, but let me say that that simplification of this particular sentence is true of the entire book. So you take all the books of the Bible, and what is true of Genesis 1-1 is true of the entirety. God is at the center God is at the center of this story, and that's hard for us to deal with as Americans, right? It's hard for us to deal with as human beings who've been told by Instagram and Facebook that we're the center of all the stories, that what we're eating and what we're doing and what we're wearing and where we're going is the most important thing that all our friends care about. It can be hard for us as human beings to think, this isn't a story about me. I want you to note that you, and not even you, you don't come into this at all, really, but you, by nature of being a man or a woman in the image of God, don't come into the story until quite a bit later here in chapter 1. When the thing starts, it starts where? It starts with God. And that principle is vital for us as human beings to recognize we are not at the center of the story, and God is. It's true of Genesis. It's true of Genesis chapter 1. It's true of the whole Bible. It's true of... Human history. It's true of the universe. God is at the center. You'll you'll do yourself a favor if you can get this one. I know it, it seems redundant, but your life will get better if you can turn loose of needing to be the center of the story. As a kid growing up, I always sort of, you know, you identify with Luke Skywalker, you identify with Indiana Jones or whatever, and those guys are the center of their stories. And so you think of yourself as Luke Skywalker. Let me tell you what, we aren't the Luke Skywalker in this story. I've said this before. I kind of think of myself as one of the Jawas that doesn't even have a name. He falls off the thing really early and nobody even knows who he is. He's just a guy, right? Just a little guy who makes a squeaky noise. God is at the center of the story. He is at the center of this and everything else. I also think it's important. This is still part of my point one. We're talking about God singular here. We're talking about God's singular. So at the time in which this was written, there, there were other people living in the land, right? They're going into the promised land and there are other people living there and those people had a tendency to be people who believed in multiple gods. There are other myths. This is not a myth. There are other stories of creation, Mesopotamian myths, and I want you to see the difference between reality and myth. In those other myths, there are gods who create out of the matter that is around them, Right? This is written not just as something different than those, not as a contemporary of those alone, but in rejection to those. So when Moses writes this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he is rejecting the contemporary Mesopotamian myths that speak of many gods. It's why here in verse 1, we want to see that not as only God at the center, but God is singular. We are monotheistic people. The monotheistic faith, we don't believe that everything is God or that there are many gods. What we see in Genesis 1-1 is a singular God. Aware of contemporary mythological creation accounts, this is written for the people of God in rejection of those accounts. These don't go together. You'll hear sometimes people say, oh, well, there were lots of these creation accounts at the time. This is distinctly different from those in that it speaks of the one true God as opposed to all of these other things. God's singular That's my first observation, God at the center. Number two, God is already there in the beginning. So it says, in the beginning, God. And God's already there. Well, what what does that mean exactly, right? Well, what it means is that we're not reading here, and this is probably part of my point three, uh, this isn't a story about God's origins. In fact, you know, you might have that question at the outset. You might be saying, well, in the beginning, God, but who is this God? And where did he come from, and where did he get his power, and what was his motivation, and where was he going? Listen, it's kind of like watching one of those shows. I remember, um, well, now there's tons of these shows, but you, you probably watch television programs or movies where, like, in the first 10 or 15 minutes, there's all kinds of stuff going on, and you can't really tell what's happening, right? You're like, Who, who's that? I sit there with my wife, and she's like, who's that lady? Where did those aliens come from? Have I seen those aliens? Like, we tried to watch... Um, Captain Marvel. Did you guys watch that movie? In my house, we don't even call her Captain Marvel. We just call her Carol. What a cool name for a superhero, by the way, right? Carol, Captain Marvel. If you've seen this Marvel movie, uh, the 1st I, I want to say like the first half an hour of that movie is like aliens fighting. And the whole time we're watching it with my wife, she's like, have we seen that alien before? He kind of looks like another alien from the other thing. And I'm like, I don't know who any of these people are. I don't know why they're doing what they're doing. I have no idea what their motivations are. We don't have to keep watching this. Honestly, I don't know what's happening. There are lots of times now when we're watching narrative uh, television or movies or sometimes even reading books where there are these things introduced at the outset and you immediately have questions about who these people are, but it isn't revealed at the very beginning. It's important to note that scripture is meant to be progressive and these truths about God will be revealed over time. But here at the outset, the implication and insinuation is you kind of know who this is, right? God. God. Right? In the beginning, God. So in the beginning, God is already there. That says something to us about His infinite nature. I love what Jesus says in John 17, in John 17, 5, and here's one of those other scriptures where we might link in the back of the book. John 17, 5, Jesus says in His high priestly prayer, and now, Father, glorify me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. Right? Further down in that same text, in John uh, seventeen twenty four. Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, speaking of us, that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So first we see that God is center. Second, we see is that at the beginning, God is already. God is. He exists before us, before our creation, before our universe. God is already there. Right? That's the second thing to understand, that God is infinite. Unlike us, I would say you and I are eternal beings. What that means is that each and every one of us have a start date, but we don't have an end date. Right? We have an earthly end date, a temporal end date, but we will live eternally, either in the presence of God or separated from God. God is not simply eternal, although he is eternal. More than that, God is infinite, meaning he has no beginning and no end. That's how he can be already at the beginning. So number one, God is at the center. Number two, God is already there in the beginning. Number three, this infinite God enters into our story. What we see here in verse one, in the beginning God created, what we see is God engaging. We see God moving towards us and stepping into a timeline, right? Not that he's completely contained by the timeline, but what we see from the very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the Bible is God engaging with his creation in a way that's different than he is, right? We, we are different than him. We are on the timeline. We have a start date and an end date. And when we see God in the beginning, when we see him enter into the beginning of all of this, what we see is engagement, We see this desire on God's part to enter into our story. When we talk about the beginning, by the way, there's lots of speculation about whether that just means sort of like back in the old days or, you know, uh, some people will say, well, in the beginning, that's talking about a specific point in time. The original Hebrew language really speaks more to like a period of time. But either way, it's the beginning of our universe. It's the beginning of our story, certainly. The beginning of the story of human history. The redemptive story of Christ. All of those things are implied here in the beginning. And God is in it, even though he's infinite. So I just want you to see his engagement. I want you to see the way he moves into that. My wife, uh, my wife and I just recently, we, you know, obviously this last year we spent a lot more time at home than we were in years past. And we bought bird feeders, right? We got two hummingbird feeders and we got like a regular bird feeder. It's one of those ones that if the squirrel gets on it, it's too heavy and it pulls it down And the squirrel. We don't want squirrels getting any of the bird food, right? So the last couple of days, I've noticed a weird phenomenon. Both my wife and I at different times in the backyard, trying to encourage the birds to come and eat the food, right? I see, I've seen her out the window and this is not meant to embarrass her, but I've seen her out the window going, we got nuts, Right? we got dried cherries. We got sunflower seeds. Hey, you know, like a bird will land on the fence and she'll be like, come over here and eat this. And at first I was watching her out the window and I was thinking like, that's bonkers, right? She's crazy. And then uh, yesterday I was in the backyard and I saw a hummingbird and I, and I literally said out loud, you should go over there. There's hummingbird food in that blue thing, you know, like, and I thought, oh yeah, I'm just as crazy. What is it I'm trying to do? It's me trying to engage with an animal, recognizing there are differences between us. I'm trying to offer something to the animal to provide something for the animal that will be beneficial for both of us. But there is quite a gap between me and bird language. Like I can whistle, but I don't think I'm hitting the mark. You know what I'm saying? And I can point with my arms, and I can do all these things, but there is sort of a language barrier there. There are some things that break down because of the difference between us, and yet what is it both my wife and I are trying to do? We're trying to engage and to draw these creatures in, right? That's what God is doing. When it says, in the beginning, God, what we see is God, the infinite, entering into our timeline. That's number three. Number four, it's important, and, I, and I said this already, but this is the beginning of our story, not his The Bible and Genesis isn't meant to be an exhaustive account of God, but it's what He knows we need to know now. Job 36.26 says this, Behold, God is great, and we know Him not. The number of His years is unsearchable. Romans eleven verse thirty three says, "O oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments! How inscrutable His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been His counselor? Who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid?" Second Peter chapter one verse two says, "May the grace and peace be multiplied to may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge." of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So here's what we understand. Genesis isn't going to be an exhaustive account of everything that God is and everything that God does and everything that God thinks, but he is going to reveal some of those things to us. Our God is a revelator. He does reveal himself to us, but not exhaustively. We will spend the rest of eternity mining the depths of the character and nature and intention and purpose and goodness and gloriousness of God. The Bible isn't going to do that completely. It's going to tell us some things about him. And it's important for us to know that when it tells us things about him, those are the things that God, in his divine wisdom, knew we needed for now. That what he gives us is enough. It doesn't mean you can't have your other questions. It doesn't mean you can't debate about your other theories. But it does mean that what God has given us is what we need. Why? Because this is not an, it's not God's story. God's story is much bigger, right? God's story is much longer. There is no beginning to God's story, for instance, and no end to it. This isn't the story of God, although it will reveal God to us. This is the beginning of our story. It's not an exhaustive account of him, but it's what we need to know now. Number five, in the beginning implies and anticipates an end. From the start, we are compelled to think about the end of the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what that naturally and instinctively does for us is it makes us think, if there's a beginning, there's also an end. If there's an entrance, there's also an exit. And I've already said you know, the fact that we are eternal beings. So there isn't, any, there isn't an end to our souls But there is an end to the story of human history. There is an end to the story of redemptive history through Christ. And what this very first verse does for us in talking about the beginning is it should cause our minds to be compelled to think about the fact that number one, our days are numbered, that we have a limited time in which to to make decisions about who this God is. But number two, God will finish writing this story with us there is a point in which the story of what he's doing on the earth will come to a conclusion psalms 39 verse 4 says "O lord make me know my end and what is the measure of my days let me know how fleeting i am behold you have made my days a few handbreadths and my lifetime as is nothing before you surely all mankind stands as a mere breath psalm 90 verse 12 says so teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. When we start to think of our lives in the light of the clock, right? We start to think about, I don't like a clock on Sunday morning because it makes me feel nervous, right? Because I know I'm supposed to be done at a certain time. But in our lives, we have a clock. There is a beginning and there is an end. There's a point after which our friends and neighbors will no longer be able to make a decision to follow Christ. And we have to live in the awareness of that conclusion in order to give us a sense of the urgency of glorifying God in the days we've got. So number five, in the beginning implies and anticipates an end. Number six, no explanation of who God is or how he did this, right? In the beginning, God created, and it doesn't tell us how. It doesn't tell us why. It doesn't tell us what he was doing before this. It doesn't give us those answers. You want to know why? It's not not the point. It's not the question the author wants us to be asking. Not that we can't ask it, but it isn't the point of the story, there is no explanation of God, who God is or how he did this. Why? Because at the very core of who God is, there is mystery, intentionally, intentional mystery. There is a progressive revelation that happens over time. We've talked again and again about the passage that says that in our togetherness, we increasingly apprehend the unknowable love of God and its height and depth and width and length. That very statement is a statement to the fact that you cannot comprehend God. We are not capable of comprehending God. We are only capable of increasingly apprehending him. And that progression is part of the way we're built. It's part of how God designed our world. He doesn't want to give us everything from the outset. He wants us to lean in. He wants us to engage, to explore, to ask the questions. And so note here, if you come to Genesis 1 and you go, wait, I got so many questions about why God did this or how he did it or what the process was, what was he thinking beforehand? It doesn't answer all those questions. It's not intended to answer all those questions because there is at the heart of God a desire to cause us to grow and change and learn as we walk with him. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine says, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. There are secret things that belong to God, but there are things that have been revealed to us. Why? That we would be obedient, that we'd be obedient with what we know. So that's number six. Number seven. I know I'm moving quickly here. Number seven, in the beginning, God created, right? Created. What that shows is power, intention, ownership, freedom, right? Creativity. This word that's used for creative uh, or, or the word that's used for created. In the beginning, God created. That word in the Hebrew is a word that is only ever used of God. It's not a word that's used when an artist makes a sculpture or when they build the tabernacle or whatever else. It's a word that's only used of God. And the implication here is that this kind of creativity, and this maybe is uh, point number eight of my observations, this kind of creativity that's exclusive to God himself is not like our creativity. It doesn't matter if you're a painter Or if you're a traditional rug hooker, or I'm just, I'm pointing right here, you know, a gene, but me too. I'm a traditional rug hooker. Uh, When I'm creating a rug, I'm using existing things, right? I'm using backing that somebody made in a factory and I'm using wool that was dyed by someone and I'm, and I'm using a cutter. I'm using all these existing things to put this wool together in a new form. Now I can shape the way that's going to appear, but I'm using existing materials, That's different than the creativity of God. The creativity of God is what we call ex nihilo, which means it is out of nothing. He speaks, and it is. That's also one difference between this creation account and the contemporary Mesopotamian ones. The contemporary Mesopotamian accounts always spoke of the gods existing alongside some kind of matter, which then they form into the shapes they want it to be in. That is not the true account of how God created the earth. He did not create from existing matter. He created from nothing, and only he does that. Our creativity is a reflection of his, but distinctly different because we can't create out of nothing. We can only create using existing materials and patterns and rhythms that we have already seen ourselves. Nobody's truly creative. Don't want to hurt your feelings. God is the only one who's truly creative, but his creation shows power, intention, freedom, right? His creative ability is different than ours. This is number eight in that he creates from nothing. Number nine, it's important to understand out of Genesis 1.1, God is not his creation. And you might be like, no, duh. But this is a fallacy. This is a theological mistake that people have made throughout the centuries in saying, well, God is in the wind, and God is in the trees, and God is in the animals, and God is in the plants, and God is in all these... God is all... We are all God, and God is all of us. That's false, right? Right? That is not what the Bible teaches. God is distinct from His creation. How do we know that? Because none of those things existed apart from God. They are all dependent upon Him for their existence. God is not His creation. He is not the universe and the trees. He is distinct from His creation. So understand that distinctiveness. And then lastly, number 10, understand that that distinction, the fact that all things are dependent and and owe their existence to Him, right to show the fact also That all things are dependent upon him. All things are dependent upon him. He isn't his creation. He created all things and therefore all things including us, including the wind and the trees and the animals and the earth and the gravity and physics and all of that. It all owes its existence to God. In fact, it says here in Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you might go, well, how is that distinctly different from what it's going to say in the verses that follow? We're going to get some real sort of sp- specifics about how that unfolds. But when he talks about the heavens and the earth, understand here, what, what the author is trying to point out to us is that in that moment uh, or, or in this account, it's not a moment, but it's over a period of time. In this period of time, God creates everything that is not God. That's an easy way to understand it. When it talks about heavens and the earth, in some ways that's pointing at a higher and lower reality. In some ways that's pointing at the spiritual realm and the physical realm. It's kind of doing all of that. But if you just want to boil it down to an easy sentence, in the beginning, God created everything that was not God. That means everything owes its life to him. Everything owes its existence to him. Everything you've ever enjoyed or appreciated. Everything you've ever tasted. Every place you've ever been. Everything you've ever experienced you owe gratitude to God because apart from Him, those things do not exist. The heavens and the earth is everything that is not God, seen and unseen, higher and lower. We see in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10 that one day all of these things will be united. Ephesians 1, 9 and 10 says that He's made known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to write all things in Him. Excuse me, to unite all things in Him Things in heaven and things on earth. All things will be restored and reunited, right? So here's the last thing, and this isn't number 10. This is part of number 10, I guess. But you know that Jesus is part of this, right? You know Jesus is part of That's very clear from the scripture. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, speaking of Jesus or the incarnate word of God, all things were made through him. This is verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Colossians 1.16, similarly says, speaking of Christ, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. Here's what I want you to see. God is not his creation. The creation is entirely dependent upon him. He's separate from it, but he created it all. He owns it all. He had the freedom of expression t- to make it all out of nothing. But not only is God the creator, and when I say God, I'm, I'm, I'm referring to Jesus as well. We see Jesus referred to in this act of creation. Not only is Jesus the creator, but as Isaiah 43, which I just read alludes to, he is also the recreator. This is kind of what our Easter message was about last week. God is not only the creator, but the recreator. So, so, track this with me. This same God who is central, right? This same God who is limitless, who is infinite, who is singular, who is engaged, who's revelatory, who's mysterious and powerful and intentional and free and creative and distinct and giving, right? By the way, those are the words that I've written in the back of my book under Who is God, right? Just for this one verse. Just for this one verse, let me say it to you again. Don't take my notes, that's cheating. Write your own list. God is central, He's limitless, He's infinite, He's singular, He's engaged, He's revelatory, He's mysterious, powerful, intentional, free, creative, distinct, giving. And this is an exhaustive list. That's out of one verse. Who is God? This book was written to tell us. But that same God who is all of those things is not only the creator at the beginning of our story, he is the re-creator in the midst of our fallenness and our brokenness. That same Jesus who created donkeys and orangutans... That same Jesus can restore the brokenness in our world, can restore the brokenness in our lives. That same Jesus can make all things new, which is what he's talking about here in Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1, verse 19. God says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. You feeling hopeless today? You feeling a little bit lost? You feeling worried about this new chapter you're headed into, whatever that looks like? The good news for us this morning is that the creator, the God who in the beginning created everything that wasn't God, heavens and earth, higher and lower, that same God is bringing his power to bear in our lives for the purposes of recreation, not only in our life, but in our world. I wrote this just at the end of my notes to myself. Darren, God is at the center of your story from the beginning. He's a mystery you can't know everything about Him, but He has revealed much about Himself to you. Darren, you will have an end, as will human history, and He will be there too. Darren, you owe your existence and the existence of everything you love and everything else, including categories of things I don't love, to Him. His power, creativity, intentionality can be brought to bear in your life in recreation. You are His, and And his purpose for you should matter. Can I read this again to you? Friends, God is at the center of your story from the beginning. He's a mystery. You can't know everything about him, but he has revealed much about himself to you. You will have an end, as will this world, and he will be there too. You owe your existence and the existence of everything you love and everything else to him his power creativity intentionality can be brought to bear in your life through recreation you are his and his purpose for you matters i pulled all of that just from genesis 1:1 can you imagine the mind that we've got before us as we study the book of Genesis. What we can learn about who God is, who we are, what it looks like to walk with him. And here's a little foreshadowing as I, as I finish, as I close. I'll say this. We didn't get any further in Genesis 1 than just that first verse. But can I give you a little hint of what's coming? He wants to walk with you. He wants to walk with you. We'll see it in the, in, the, in the pages ahead. We're going to see that not only is this God powerful and creative and all these things, he wants to walk with you. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but just know this same God who created everything wants to walk with you and invites you into that, engages with us in it. And that should change the way we approach the book, the way we approach him, and the way we approach one another. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us more observations. I've scratched the surface of one verse. God, would you stir in us, both in our individual quiet times in your word, in our corporate times, in small groups, in adult fellowships, in large groups, and God, would you stir in us a deeper desire to, to mine the depths and the riches of your word? to understand that you have revealed this for our good, to know something of who you are and something of who we are. And would you help us to understand that this same God who brought all things into existence, who is distinct from the creation and yet fills the creation, that that same God is recreating our world and offers us the opportunity through the saving blood of Christ to be recreated through his death and resurrection. Help us to understand that that this is the same God who wants to walk with us. That you are the same God who wants to walk with us and to worship and adore you in light of that incredible love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.